So there's a reporter, reporter in quotes, named Emerald Robinson. She used to work for Newsmax as a White House correspondent, but the conservative network kicked her to the curb after she tweeted, Dear Christians, the vaccines contain a bioluminescent marker called luciferase so that you can be tracked. Read the last book of the New Testament to see how this ends. Nowadays, Emerald has her own substack called emerald.tv with more than 51,000 subscribers and posts with headlines like Heroes Who Stood Against the Rainbow Jihad and Everybody Knows Our Elections Are Fake Now. And the other day, Emerald tweeted out, Do you know the number of liberals who have contacted me in the last three years to debate or discuss my extensive reporting on election fraud and voting machines? Zero. None. Nada. Zilch. They know they cheated in 2020. And I wrote back immediately. I invited Emerald onto this program, and of course she didn't respond. So I'm doing it again. Emerald Robinson, I think you're freaking crazy. I think you're insane. I think you're a xenophobic conspiracy theorist. But, and I say this sincerely, I would love to have you on this podcast to debate and discuss your extensive reporting on election fraud and voting machines. Please come on. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers, Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Bill Plasky, the terrific Los Angeles Times sports columnist. Bill's truly one of the best in the business. This is episode number 318. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. All right, Bill. So, you know, I don't usually make this a sort of this is your life podcast, but when I was reading through your clips and I've obviously read you for years, like I was like, you know what? I don't actually know a ton about Bill's background. I know the basics of skeletons, but not that much. And um, I always do this thing where I go to newspapers.com and I try to find the oldest reference I could find to a person. And what I have here in front of me is from the Courier Journal in Louisville, Kentucky, your hometown of May 8th, 1976. And it says, papers present awards to pupils from 24 schools. It says, the Courier Journal and the Louisville Times presented awards to high school journalists from 24 schools at the Greater Louisville High School Press Association Banquet last night at DeSales High School. And, you know, look, a lot of tough competition. You got Tim Nickens from Jeffersonville High winning in news and Lori Fisher in features. And when I go down to sports, they got uh, Scott Wansettler, and Bill Plasky winning the sports awards in uh, the Lord's year of 1976. I had to sh- had to share that damn thing, didn't I? I? I didn't win that right. Where the hell is Scott Watton Sutler anymore? Well, in the uh, in the banquet, so they announced my name, and I was so excited, I jumped up, did a one of these, and danced, and my chair fell down. The whole place stared at me like I was an idiot. But I was thrilled. I was, you know, just I was the kid from the other side of the tracks who got in, got in with the big boys. So I was thrilled. I think about this a lot. And I'm guessing you do, too, which is like you. I'm from a very small town in rural upstate New York. I, I like you. I wrote for my high school newspaper. My dream was to be a writer. We both sit here in Southern California. We both have been able to last in this profession. I sometimes I honestly think to myself, I don't this is I feel like I've lived the dream. I, I feel like I've lived the dream. I truly no, no, Jeff. I've lived the dream. <laughs> All right, tell me why. What makes you say you have lived the dream? 
well, from where I came from, it's just, it's amazing I'm sitting here. It's amazing I'm sitting here with a career at all. I mean, I was, uh, the only reason I started writing, I started writing in eighth grade in Little Kentucky because I, I stuttered real bad and I couldn't talk and I couldn't really communicate very well. So writing was my outlet and I love sports. So I started doing little league games. My, my dad bought me a binder and I went and when they go to these little league games and write them up, I come home and my mom would type. I couldn't type because remember back then, I don't know if you're, if you're of this age, you had to take typing classes because we didn't have any outlets for typing. So nobody, today everybody can type when they're eight years old. I was, you know, in high in eighth grade, I couldn't type. So my mom would just stay up all night typing my stories for me on an electric typewriter. Then we'd get in the car and drive through the streets of Louisville, Kentucky, about two in the morning to a little newspaper called The Voice Jeffersonian. It's a local weekly paper that served the, like all the neighborhoods. I would put my story in the mail slot and four days later, it would appear in a paper. It was amazing. It was like a miracle. I mean, I couldn't believe it happened. I couldn't believe that, that, that I could write, see something, write something, describe something and have everybody else share, have be able to share with everybody four days later. It was, it was amazing to me. So that's how I got started. So then I go to college and I'm, a, I'm my parents moved from Louisville, Kentucky to Salem, Illinois. So I had to go to school in Illinois. I went to Baylor for a year and, and we, and we, we ran out of money. So I had to transfer back to Southern Illinois and I went to SIU Edwardsville. It's a commuter school. It's a, branch school of SIU Carbondale. So it's not the Salukis. We were the Cougars located outside St. Louis. No dorms. No, only one sports team. They had a basketball team that played in a high school gym and they had a soccer team. And that was it. I lived in a church basement next to an oil refinery. Lived in, lived in one room there. And it stunk, stunk to high heaven the whole time I was in college. And I lived there and I covered, there was, people wonder why I write so many human interest stories. Because we didn't have any, that's all we had was human interest. We didn't have any sports teams to cover. I didn't, I didn't have any, I wasn't, you see all these college kids today coming out and they've covered Rose Bowls and Final Fours and Super Bowls. And I, I never got near any of that stuff. So I had no connections. I had no contacts. So I applied my junior year at SIU Edwardsville. I applied for internships. I applied to 50 internships around the country, 50. Wait, I just want to say for young listeners, this did not mean emailing anyone. This meant writing a letter, clip. <laughs> Folder going to the post office. Writers, you're exactly, you're exactly right. You're exactly right, Jeff. You remember that exactly correctly. I had a stack of clips. I had a, had my typewriter. I type a type a letter out. Take eight clips, put an envelope. Do it again and again and again. Did it fifty times. I got one response. One from Muskegon, Michigan. <laughs> so I went up to Muskegon, the Muskegon Chronicle. Went up to Muskegon, Michigan, and covered drag racing and and uh, softball and little league baseball and all that stuff for a summer, come home the next year, my senior year, I apply for 50 more internships, 50 more. I get no responses. So I remember, remember that's how you Edwardsville. I got no contacts. I have no money. I have no credentials. I have no pedigree. I have nobody to help me out. I have no, uh, you know, I'm not, no, no, nobody from our department had ever gone out of, out of the, 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 the area to work, work for a newspaper. Right. I had nowhere to go. So I'm coming home one, one night in a, from school and my roommates run out to the front of the balcony of the apartment I was living in. It was snowing. I never forget this. It was snowing. It was a February day. 
and they shout, Bill, Bill, somebody called, somebody called. And I said, who called? Well, they were, they were, there was, they, they, these guys were stoned and they, they were drug dealers, my, my roommates. So they were stoned. So they were all, they said, we don't, we, I don't know. We, you don't know who called? Uh, somebody called. Who called? Uh, we don't. So I ran upstairs and on the back of a Cocoa Puffs box, they had written St. Petersburg Times and they had written the phone number. The best internship in the country at the time, the St. Petersburg Times had called me. So I called them back and they said, we'd like you to come intern for us. And I said, okay, I'll be there tomorrow. I said, no, it doesn't start. I said, no, I'll be there tomorrow. So I jumped in my car and drove, missed my graduation, drove down. That's how my career started. So yeah, I come from an area that I just thought I'd never, I would never see what I've seen. I've never even dreamed of the LA Times, never dreamed of LA, never dreamed of Southern California, never dreamed of getting anywhere. I was going to go work for my dad's printing press, my dad's printing plant. He, he, he was a magazine printer. I was going to work in the back shop. <clears throat> I'm living the dream. I'm so lucky. So freaking lucky. I, I do not have the same background, but I am a guy who I went to University of Delaware. Not a not a big journalism yeah. power. I like you. I sent out a gazillion applications. I had an internship at the Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. Got paid three dollars an hour. Worst yeah. summer of my life. But, you know. I feel like there's something to be said that a lot of people nowadays want to skip over, maybe just do skip over for having the shit internship, the shit job. You don't know it's shit at the time, but looking back, covering really small events, uh, taking your own stats, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's something life affirming and career building about those moments. Oh, absolutely. I mean, c covering the high school football game where you have to, the, the, the most important question you asked is, what's your name, son? Right. Because, because you, you get rosters, bad rosters from coaches. You're walking the sidelines. You try to, you, your biggest decision is, do you cover the punter or do you cover the returner? Where do you stand on the sidelines on a high school football game, right? You're, which, you're running down the field, trying to take play by play. Yeah, I've done all that. Yeah, that really, um, and you can tell, I can tell a young journalist who's paid the price and who's skipped the steps. Because if you pay the price, you don't take anything for granted. Jeff, I've never, and I'm sure you're the same way, I've never turned down a story in my life. My boss wants me to write something. I'm writing it. Whatever they want, wherever they want me to go, I'm going. And you have kids stay that turn. I don't want to do that. I'm, that's not my. That's not my thing. That's not my style. And it's, it's like everything's your thing. Everything's your style. So you really appreciate. I appreciate and value every moment. And I'm and I'm and I'm, I'm sure I'm like I'm like you back when you were even now with, with, with all your books. Total fear of failure. Total fear. Total fear of I'm going to get fired. I'm always thinking I'm going to get fired. Kids today, and I don't sound like an old man here. I better be careful. Yeah. But a lot of young journalists or a lot of young workers don't worry about being fired. They're, 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 they have no fear. They think they'll, they'll just get another job or they'll, they'll move on or they're used to working a bunch of jobs. Every day I'm afraid I'm going to get fired. Every day I'm afraid I'm going to screw up. So, yeah, I think this really builds that in you. It builds that work ethic in you. And you don't take anything. I don't take anything for granted. Every time I get a paycheck, I'm thrilled. Wait, you and I could start a grumpy old man uh, collective. I know, yeah. I just want to say, to me, like we were talking about before, that the LA Times just had layoffs, the Athletic had layoffs, recently BuzzFeed News, blah, blah, blah. And people say, what do I do? What do I do? To me, there's one universal thing you can do that I did, and it sounds like you did, which is you apply fucking everywhere. You literally sit down, find every newspaper in the country, 
and send every newspaper. Now at least you can do it with email. Like back then I was spending a hundred bucks on post-its. Like just apply everywhere. Someone will have an opening. It might suck. It might, you might wind up in Danville, Illinois, but someone will have an opening if you apply everywhere. They had a book back then. I don't know if you remember, it's called the editor and publisher yearbook. Come on. Of course, Bill. <laughs> that was, that was our Bible. Yeah. I don't think they still have that, but you know, I would have, I would just, I would just go through it and apply to every paper in the country. One place I applied the Richmond times dispatch. And they were the one letter I got that said, well, we do have openings. We do have internships, but you have to do it in person. So I'm sure you can't, that's why we take locals because nobody, you know, nobody flies here on their own dime to do that. I saved up all my lawnmower money and flew to Richmond and walked in that office from Louisville, Kentucky, because, because the one place that gave me a, a, a glimmer of hope, they looked at me like I was crazy. The interview lasted 10 minutes and I was out of there because they, they only hire locals. And they're like, what are you doing here? And I said, well, you said in a letter, if I came here, you'd interview me. So I'm here. I spent all my whole life savings to, to, to make that trip. So yeah, it's uh you, you apply every word, everything, every, and, and even today now, I think it's, and I, and I don't want to sound like a grumpy old man because the, the young journalists today are brilliant. They're so, they're so great with technology. They're so great with audience engagement. They're so great with ferreting out what the, what the great stories are. The young journalists today are tremendous. Mm -hmm. but, but I think there's also places they can apply besides newspapers. I tell them uh, every sports team has media. I mean, if it gets down to that, sports teams have their media. Companies have their media outlets. Sports, you know, there's a lot of places to apply. But yes, every newspaper that's still printing you should apply to no matter what size, no matter what. Yeah. Just, just get, just get your foot in the door. I just want to say 1992, I'm a student at the university of Delaware. There's a job fair journalism fair in the lobby of the Philadelphia Inquirer, Philadelphia daily news building. Me and another student named Doug Donovan, who wound up winning a Pulitzer at the Baltimore sun snuck our way into the newsroom with stacks of resumes and post-it notes. We put our resume and clips on different desks and scribble on a post-it note, you should check this kid out. He's pretty good. And oh, that's tremendous. <laughs> that's tremendous. Yeah, no, I've, I've, yeah, I would, if you could give me a glist, a glimmer of hope, I would, I would, I would jump at it. I would go for, you know, for, I, I, I applied to Hawaii. I applied to Alaska. I applied to everywhere. I didn't even think. And I guess just got, and it's so disheartening to get no responses. I mean, just to, I mean, I was going again, my father printed magazines and I was going to go work, work, work in his shop. That, that was my, that was my career until that one call. All you need is one. I tell people, all you need is one. Yes. You just need one. Yeah. You just need a yes from somebody somewhere. You just need a yes. The, the funny thing is when I, I remember being like, when I, all those rejection letters and I'd be like, I'll show them one day. Like they give a shit, you know, like, they, like, <laughs> oh, wow. He really showed us. We should have hired him in Palooka, you know, like nobody cares. When I when I went to SIU Evansville, I walked into the journalism department, which was very small, to the journalism director and said, I'm going to be the best writer to ever come out of here. And he said, get out of here. Get out of here, kid. And I was, and I don't know about you, but I was pretty terrible. I thought I was really good. I was pretty bad. Wait, this is a great question for you, Bill. I'm being serious about this. Like you, at least how it sounds, I was kind of a cocky asshole. Like, I thought I was the best writer. I thought I was going to be the best writer. I was like, I'm going to be the best sports writer in the country, blah, 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 all that stuff, right? And I look back with a lot of shame. Like I look back and think, God, I was really insufferable. My first job at the Tennessee and I was the worst. And yet 
I also feel like that cockiness maybe helped me a little bit in some weird disappointing yes, way. Yes, it does. It does because it takes it. This is one thing you see with young journalists today. It takes some courage to do this job, to walk into a locker room and talk to somebody you don't know and introduce yourself. And today's young journalists don't, they don't do that. You don't see many questions. You don't see many, you don't see much aggressiveness from young journalists. And I think be cocky was like that. So I was, when I was in, in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida was, was, was my first job. And I covered alligator wrestling and senior citizen tennis and softball and all kinds of sports. I was, you know, I was pretty, pretty humble then, but, but I got, I got my first big beat in Seattle. So I go to Seattle, Washington to cover the Seattle Mariners. And I, and the local radio, radio station wants to do an interview with me. And I'm really cocky now because I got this big job. And they say, okay, well, who are your influences? I say, well, I'm influenced by William Faulkner. Oh, my God. And I went, well, what do I say? What am I doing? Who, 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 who am I? And I was covering a baseball beat for the first time. And I got my ass kicked on the bed. I got my butt kicked. Ten different ways to study. I got beat on every story for a solid year. Every story I got beat on by the by the Seattle Times. I was working for the Seattle Post Intelligence or the Morning Paper. Right. I thought it was so cool. So covering baseball was really was, was the best thing ever for me. I covered that almost ten years as a beat guy, beat person because it really humbles you. And but 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 the cockiness helped me in that locker room in that clubhouse because you need to have something. You need to have a certain swagger about you that enables you to go up to these million dollar athletes who don't really need you and and ask them about their lives and talk to them and sit, you know and 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 connect with them and it takes some of that and you don't see much of that today i don't see more, more i don't see much of that it's weird sometimes in press conferences that i'm at i have to ask the tough questions because a lot of the younger journalists just don't want to ask the tough questions what was your low point covering the seattle mariners Oh, I, I tell you exactly. The first year it was in September, and they fired their manager. The other paper had the firing, beat me by a full day on it. I wake up, they, they, they're, they're the evening paper, and they come out, but but they were a morning paper on Saturday. So me and them went head to head on Saturday. Saturday morning, I wake up, Dell Crandall's getting fired as as the Mariners manager. I had nothing. We had no Sunday papers. I had to wait till Monday to follow it. So I got beat on the biggest story you could have when you arguably when you cover the beat, your biggest scoop would be the manager gets fired. That's the biggest scoop. And nobody gets that anymore. Yeah. So he he got it, put it in the headlines. I remember standing on the balcony of my apartment. I shared, I shared with, with my then wife. And I looked out and I said, I'm gonna jump. I said, I'm gonna jump off the, I'm gonna kill myself. I mean, I really thought that. Yeah. I was so embarrassed, so shamed. It was the biggest story of the year, biggest story of, of my job, and I failed. You know, and but I tell you what, it, it never had never happened again. But yeah, yeah, I was gonna Jeff, I was gonna jump. I was so disconsolate and so oh my God. I'd worked so hard to get where I was at, and this that totally brought me back to earth. I didn't mention William. I've never mentioned William Faulkner again. I've never even read any of his damn books. Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's awesome. You did have the honor of covering the Alvin Davis, Spike Owen, Jim Presley, Dave Henderson, Seattle Mariners, though. They cannot take that away from you. How do you know? How do you remember all those guys? Come on, man. I grew up a Seattle Mariners fan. Spike Owen's nickname. You know what his, his nickname was? No. It was John. 
I said, why is it Johnny? He said, because I already got a nickname. So my nickname is a regular name. Oh, that's funny. After that first year, I didn't get beat on another story. I mean, I got, oh, I did, but I didn't get beat as bad. So they all called me Scoop. And even today, you'll see Alvin Davis. If I see him, he'll say, hey, how's it going, Scoop? All those guys called me Scoop. And it was so funny. Was it fun covering shitty baseball in an awful stadium? Terrible stadium. In fact, I had a key to the stadium. I had a key to the kingdom. And I actually got there early. You get there early, it's dark, and they're taking, and there's no BP, and it's, it's the whole field is dark. It's in the dark dugout. Yeah, there was a really appeal to it because the players weren't, you know, winning didn't matter. It didn't wasn't a factor. They were just trying to keep their careers alive. So there was a lot of desperation, a lot of emotion, you know, and you'd make big deals out of stuff. If a guy threw a complete game, I'd act like it was we won the World Series. I'd have guys, guys would be, you know, I'd be crying at the guys who got who got three hits in a game. Right. You make the big the biggest deals out of the smallest things. My favorite moment in covering baseball in Seattle was the they had mascot day or cartoon day where they had a bunch of cartoon characters walking in from center field. And Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble were next to you. And I was out there in the field. And Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble were next to each other walking into the field. And they tripped. And Barney tripped on second base. And the costume got his face was on the base. He couldn't breathe. So Fred's saying, get up, Rubble, get up. And Barney says, I can't, I can't breathe. He, he was asphyxiated. The mascot was asphyxiated on second base in the kingdom. They had to get the ER people out there to, to pick him up and get him out. It was hilarious. That was that was the Mariners for you. Yeah, that's fantastic. I actually rooted for the Mariners because um, three yeah, reasons. Yeah, why? Number one, they were so awful. I just thought it was fun to root for the Mariners. So I ordered on QVC a Seattle Mariners jacket when I was in high school. And I was definitely the only guy in mail pack New York with a Mariners jacket. Number two. And yeah, they, they, they had that cool Mariner, whatever that thing is called. That, yeah, the Trident. It was the awesome. Trident. Yeah. yeah, it's awesome. Number two, my... um. My favorite player as a kid was Ken Griffey Sr. So when they drafted Junior, I felt, you know, sort of, you know, like something. And then my neighbor growing up was a pitcher named Dave Fleming who wound up pitching for the Seattle Mariners. So it felt like a very, it was the team to root for. So there you have it. I have an adopted little brother. I had one adopted little brother from Big Brother, Big Sister, and I brought him up to the field. And Rory Thomas took him on the field and let him play to take batting practice. I mean, that was that was that was that. I love Rory Thomas. I love all those. I, I love Tendu. God rest his soul. I love Dale Davis. Love Spike. I loved all those guys. They were and they were. And then again, once they realized they knew I was young, they knew I didn't know anything. They knew I was an idiot. And sometimes I think they called me scoopers to be ironic. Because I wasn't getting the scoop, but they were but they were very good to me. And yeah. I tell them that when I see him today, I thank him. Even today, I thank him. Mark Langston, remember him? He was. Of he's course, a, come on, of course. He's an announcer. He's an angel announcer. Yeah, and he still uh, calls me Scoop. I also think it's cool that we have now made podcast history. This might be the first podcast in America to have a Roy Thomas mention. During- I love. I love me some Roy Thomas. There you go. He was. He was. He was crazy. He was a crazy reliever. Before we continue with two writers slinging yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, and I hear you're rushing a sorority in college. It's true. I hate sororities. Is that because when you were at Delaware Tech, all the Greek girls laughed at you and wouldn't let you into their parties? No. I bet you tried asking a sorority girl out, and she was like, listen, loser, I only date cool bros with tats and kegs. So walk the other way, John. And you were like, it's Jeff. And she was like, I don't care. Just go. No. So what is it? I just don't understand why sororities don't wear old USFL jerseys and hats from RoyalRetros.com. They have all different styles and colors. It's really cool. I already put it in order. 
We're all wearing Arizona Wranglers jerseys for Greek games. Wow, can I come? Uh, sorry, John, but no. So when you left Seattle, came to LA, took over the Dodger beat, obviously they're both major league teams. They both play in the same, you know, on the same continent. Was going from a market like Seattle to going to a market like LA an enormous, enormous leap? Or was it just like doing the same thing in a bigger city? Well, I started out at the LA Times. I never went to the front door anywhere, Jeff. I came in the back door. I started at the, at the San Diego County edition. We had a San Diego County edition. I started out covering the Padres in San Diego County. So that was my first beat to after the Mariners. And I covered Larry Boa's Padres. Oh. My, my first job on the job was in Montreal. And Boa went crazy at some writer in, the, in, the, in his office, just throwing things. It was cursed, going nuts. And Tony Gwynn called me over and said, said, I know you're new. Don't worry. You'll get used to it. It's crazy around here. Tony Gwynn was my favorite athlete ever. I love I loved that man. And he took care of me when I was there. But anyway, yeah, so I saw I was doing the Padres. You covered Larry Boa as manager of the Padres. I feel like no one would read it, so we can't write it. There's a great book to be written about Larry Boa's one and a half years as the manager of the San Diego Padres. He went six. There was a book years. written. There, there was a book written. It was by Barry Bloom wrote it. A book about the Larry Boa Padres? Yes. And a great title to it. Bleep. Bleep. That's right. It was called Bleep. That's right. Wait, wait there was a book written by Barry Bloom with Larry, with Larry Boa called Bleep Larry Boa Manages. It's about Larry Boa managing the San Diego Padres when you were covering the San Diego Padres. So, and I remember being a kid and being like, holy shit. This guy's crazy. Like, what was it like covering Larry Boa as the manager of the Padres? Oh, he oh he was nuts. He would rip the he would rip the players. He would call names to us on the record. He would every night. It was something crazy. So then, the final thing is when he gets fired. We're in Philadelphia, and he gets fired. And I actually had the scoop that he was going to get fired because the general. I I knew somebody who. A relative of the general manager, Jack McKeon, gave me this story. It was, it was crazy. But anyway, so he, he gets fired, and he's really mad, but he can't stand. He says, he, he we call him, you know, you got fired. What do you, you got to say? He says, I can't get out of bed. Come up to my room. So we all came to his room and interviewed him in his bed in his pajamas after he got fired because, because he couldn't get out of bed. But he was, oh, he was, he'd scream at the umpire. He'd scream at the writers. He'd scream at everybody all the time. I mean, you know what, though? I, I love him. I mean, because he really, he I later dealt with him with, with the Dodgers. He, he coached the Dodgers. And he was really good, really, uh, you know, he would come up. I mean, I, I don't know if you can curse on this. this yeah, this of course you can. Of course you can. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He would, he, he, he'd point to a player and say, you see that guy there? He's a pussy. He's a <laughs> pussy and I don't trust him. Or he he pointed a guy there and say he's 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 terrible he's you know, and of course that's when he had the great Jack then Jack Clark joined the Padres and I was covering him uh-huh. and Tony Gwynn didn't like him and he didn't like Tony Gwynn, so he he called us over one one day and said you see that guy you see Tony Gwynn yeah he's a snake a snake and we quoted them with the, all the s's he's a snake it was it was crazy down there but I covered I covered the Padres yeah it was. That's the, the, I, my, my favorite game ever. Chubb Feeney was a club president. Fan Appreciation Day. Fans are booing him. He gives the fans a finger. He gives the fans a finger on Fan Appreciation Day. In San Diego, yeah. Those are great Padre teams. I just want to say, you, among the guys you cover, so I'm looking at this old Padre roster, and it brings me joy to my heart. 
Yeah, and my second favorite player of all time, Gary Templeton. Gary with two R's. Love Gary. Yeah, it was Templeton. great. Yeah, Kevin Mitchell, because I wrote a book about the Mitch. I love Kevin Mitchell. Yeah. It's Stanley Jefferson, who became a New York City police officer. Yeah. Did Gwyn, he really? Yeah. You had Gwynn, who's a delight, obviously a delight. You had John Cruck. You had um, Marvell Wynn. You had Chris Brown, who ended up becoming a truck driver and I think dying in Afghanistan, perhaps. You had Garvey at the end of his run. What a delight of weirdness on that team. Marvell Wynn was, he he got into an argument one time with with Boa in the dugout. And they were, they were busting and yelling at each other. And we uh, went to Boa afterward. And said, what, 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 what were you guys arguing about? No comment. We go to Marvel win. What are you all fighting about? What did Boa say? He said, no comment. Marvel said, he's a liar. That was the Marvel win story. You also had Eric Shaw of the John Burt Society starting uh, pitching for that team. He was crazy. He, he had people protesting him and we, we would, yeah, he, he hit Andre Dawson one time in Chicago and had to have a, Police escort out of the hotel. It was it was crazy covering those teams. Right. What was it about Gwyn that you like covering? He was the kindest, gentlest man. He was so friendly. He would talk to us every day, just as people. He'd ask about our families. He was just a good man. He was such a good man. He was so good to everybody. He was always in a good mood. My favorite stat from this year's final four is, and the question I ask, I ask people on, on the TV show I do around the horn. I ask it, who is the San Diego state all-time leader in assists? Tony Gwynn. Yeah, Tony Gwynn. That's a, he was a great basketball. He was just, just, just a great man. It's interesting. I had um, Marty Appel. I don't know if you know Marty, but the former Yankee PR guy, and he, he's yeah. written a bunch of books. And Marty, a few weeks ago, was on my podcast, and he said, there are two people he can't believe just aren't alive. And he said, Mickey Mantle and Tom Seaver, like it doesn't make sense to him in his head. And I actually feel that way about Tony Gwynn. I, I can still hear, see, picture standing in front of Tony Gwynn when the Yankees and the Padres played in the World Series in 98 and him looking out at Yankee Stadium and just being in yes. such awe. And it's hard to believe in a way that Tony Gwynn has been gone for so long. He just was such a presence. It's amazing he's not here. It's amazing. And I tell... Any athlete I talk to, to talk about Gwen, I talk about how he died and how why why these guys still put shoe in their mouths. You know, he died of throat yeah. cancer. That's awful. You end up covering the Dodgers, and then ultimately you become a columnist. And you're well, well, I covered the Dodgers only because the beat came open. They offered it to three other people at our staff. I was the fourth choice because it was a hard team to cover with Gibson, Eddie Murray, Tommy was you know was 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 mercurial. So no, nobody wanted to cover him. So I said, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I won't turn it What down. year was this, your first year on the Dodger beat? It was 1989. I covered the World Series in 88, and then it was a, probably the early in 1989. Okay, so you come in, and you have this team of moody veterans, and you have the notorious Kirk Gibson, who nobody as a player enjoyed covering. Eddie Murray, equally, nobody enjoyed covering. Did you walk into a shitstorm? Like, what was it like going from the pretty cuddly Padres to the Dodgers? It was terrible. The players were so awful, and Gibby, Gibby would yell at me every day. He would curse at me, tell me to get away from him. He would threaten me. There was it was terrible, and so, so you deal with all these. But and then you have to deal with Tommy, and Tommy was the kind of guy you would. I wondered why why everybody would sit in his. You had you have to go sit in his office for the entire pregame, and you have to eat with him, and you got to stay there with him, and he never wanted to be alone. So I'm trying to cover this team, but Tommy says, get get in the office, get sit down there. 
he would take a shower after games. He would say, after games, I'm on deadline. He says, no, stay here. I'll give you a scoop if you stay here while well, I take a shower. So he would shower and the room would be filled with smoke, with steam. Your notebook's wet. You're on deadline, but you got to stay there because he's going to give you a scoop. So he was like, you'd have to eat with them. You have to, you have to stay there while you shower. You have to stay with them the whole, the whole night to get anything from. It was nuts. It was, and it was so funny. Gibby was so bad that later on, 10, probably 10 years later, when he, he was a manager of the, of the uh, Diamondbacks, he and I, he and I walked down to the, to the, to the dugout. He, he walked down with me on the right field line. We sat down in the, in the dugout and he apologized. Wow. Yeah. He said, listen, I know I treated you terrible. I know I was terrible. He said, but the team needed a dick. And I was that dick. The team needed a bad guy. They needed some fire. I was doing what I had to do. He was really good about that. Wow. Up until that point, that apology in your head, were you sort of like, fuck this guy? Absolutely. Oh, I hated him. Oh, yeah. I get so tired. Jerry. You see this all the time. You get so tired of athletes. Once they quit playing, they're nice to you. Once they need you, they're nice to you. I don't have, I don't have any, any space in my head for that anymore. No, I just said he's the worst guy I ever covered. I don't care what the great hit he had. The biggest mystery in L.A. sports. This is one of my favorite Dodger stories when I covered it. Kirk gets his home run ball. Nobody knows where it is. Nobody's ever found it. Because back then, you know, memorabilia wasn't as big as it was now. So you, you watch the video and you see a ball hit the, hit the uh, right field pavilion. It, it hits the, the seats. It gets to the ground. Somebody picks it up. And I, people have spent... Spent 35 years trying to find out who picked that ball up. So I did a couple of columns, searched and searched, got an email from a guy who got me the best answer I could get. A guy had it, gave it to his wife. They got divorced. His wife took the ball, gave it to her dad. Her dad put it in a garage, in a box in the garage, and it got thrown out. Yeah. Wow. So that's the best, but that's the closest that we can come to find out who has that ball. Nobody knows. Ball hadn't been seen since. Wait, I have a question for you. So it's all these years later. Kirk Gibson apologized. He had, now he has Parkinson's. You see him. He's re, he really struggles. But he was a monumental asshole to the media. Monumental. And it sounds like to you, he was as big a dick as could be. Do you fully forgive him? Or are you sort of like, all right, that's fine. But you really made my life miserable for no great reason. I forgive him totally because the way he explained it, Jeff, and it makes sense. They needed a bad guy in there. They needed, they were too cuddly before in 88, before 88. They needed a bad guy. So I forgive him. I forgive everybody. You know, it's too, life's too short now. It's too short to hold grudges. And, you know, and athletes, I'm amazed at some athletes who, who have been so mean to me will come up to me now and be really nice. You know, you, you, I'm sure you go through the same thing. Oh, yeah. And I just say thank you very much and nice to see you. And it was great covering you. You know, it just, it's life's too short to worry about. Hey, Bill, that. you know what is funny? We win in the long run because we last a lot longer than they do. You know, that's a great point, Jeff. And, and, I, I, and I actually believe that to myself is that we're survivors yep. and we survive. And, they, and, and I tell athletes this, or I'll tell PR people this. Well, so-and-so don't want to talk. He doesn't like him. I said, fine, I'm going to be here longer than he is. And so far, that's been correct. I've been there longer than he or, or she has been. And I've gotten into it with, with, with female athletes before, too. Candace Parker and I got into it one time. When she was with the Sparks, I wanted to talk to her before a game, and she didn't want to talk to me. 
and they made her come and talk to me before the game, and she was just terrible. Didn't want to look at me. The worst interviews, you know, Jeff, when they, they don't even look at you. Yeah. They're looking away, one-word answers. And I said, listen, Kobe Bryant talks every single day. If he can talk every day, you can talk before a stupid before a game. You can talk for 10 minutes. Kobe Bryant can do it in this town. You can do it in this town. And I got, you know, I, I really lit into her because I was just, I just had it. What was her response to that? Nah, she looked away. She blew me off. She and I are not friends now. If someone is like that, treats you like shit, do you at all have to fight an instinct not to then drag her or him in a story, in a column? Absolutely. You have to fight that. Yes. And and you can't do it. You can't, you go out of your way. Probably the best way to not get ripped by me is to be mean to me because I'm not going to rip you back because you, you just, it's unseemly. And it's like, you know, I can now do you, do you give them at the end of their career? And this is what people, people say us all the time. They say, well, at the end of somebody, when somebody gets traded, I'll write their flaws. I'll write the good and the bad. They'll say, well, why did you write the flaws when they played when they were here? Well, it's kind of, it, it's, it was, as a beat person, it's a dicey endeavor. You have to keep them talking to you. And that's the main thing as a beat person. You got to keep them talking to you. Is it worth losing them to rip them as a beat person? And so that's why the columnists are so important, I think, because we can now as a columnist, I can rip all the time and it doesn't, you know, or be, be honest all the time. And I don't have to play games. I don't need them anymore. Right. I don't need LeBron to talk to me. Right. I don't need Kershaw to talk to me. So I, I have more freedom than that than I did as a beat reporter. There's a documentary that just came out on Netflix about Reggie Jackson. And from everyone I've known who've covered Reggie Jackson, they just hated him. They just said he was awful. He was a dick. He was arrogant. He was mean. He was dismissive. And he was a phony. And you wrote a, you mentioned Tommy Lasorda and you wrote a book with Tommy Lasorda. And I don't, I don't make it a, a habit of speaking ill of the deceased, but Tommy Lasorda, you kind of heard the same thing about that. He was a phony, that he was a fraud, that he was kind of a dick, that he'd say nice, he'd look nice in front of the crowd, and then he'd be an asshole behind the back. Am I too hard on Tommy Lasorda? No, you got him exactly right. He was a complicated human being. I've seen him do some of the greatest things ever. I've seen him with sick children, with, you know, with dying fans. I've seen him make people's whole lives by being nice to him. And I've seen him just tear people to shreds. I've seen it. I've seen both of them. And my, my big thing about Tommy that, that gets me is that book we wrote, they had big plans, a big advance. It was all going to be huge because he was going to talk about his son. Well, to talk about his son, he has to say that his son, as we all know, died of, of complications from AIDS. Mm-hmm. Very young man, Tommy Jr. Well, Tommy never admitted that he had AIDS. He said he had cancer. I said, Tommy, I can't write he had cancer. You got to write he had cancer. I can't, I'm not going to write that. We got in a shoddy match in his office. They called security. We're, we're yelling at each other, screaming at each other. This is, this is why we're trying to write the book. Well, you know, he had final say on the, on the manuscript. So there's no mention of his son. So I said, well, I'm not going to write about your son. Then. If you can't tell the truth, I'm not going to write about it. And he didn't write about it. And so forever, I think that that really hurt the book. And that's, that's kind of Tommy in a nutshell. His public face was so great, but he could be very vindictive, very mean and bad. But I think all told, I believe he did more good than harm in the world. And I loved him. And I, and I, you know, I was, I saw the great things he did, 
but it pains me to see the, the stuff he did behind the scenes when the cameras are off. It, it was tough. So he's a very kind. Yes, you got him right. He's a very complicated person. You wrote a great column when Kobe Bryant passed. The headline was, how can Kobe Bryant really be gone? And your lead was, Kobe Bryant is gone. I'm screaming right now, cursing into the sky, crying into my keyboard, and I don't care who knows it. Kobe Bryant is gone, and those are the hardest words I've ever had to write for this newspaper, and I still don't believe them as I'm writing them. I'm still crying, and go ahead, let it out. Don't be embarrassed. Cry with me. Weep and wail and shout into the streets. Fill a suddenly empty Los Angeles with your pain. That doesn't strike me as hyperbole. It seems like you really were crying and screaming. And Well, I was. I'll tell you, tell you the story. I, was, I flew to Miami for the Super Bowl that morning. It was a foggy morning. And I, I can't believe our plane even took off. I couldn't even see my hand in front of me in my neighborhood. Flew to Miami, get there, go to the hotel, lay down for a nap. The phone starts buzzing. I, I ignore it. I ignore it. I ignore it. Finally, it buzzed for 20 straight minutes. And I pick it up. And one of my editors was on the phone. And he said, all he says in the phone was, fuck, Kobe Bryant's dead. I said, what? Kobe Bryant's dead. I said, no. And then he explained to me what happened. And I said, okay, I, I, I got to write. So I literally got off the bed, went to the desk, turned my computer and wrote. So I wrote with that, I wrote that within five minutes of knowing of, of his passing. So that's all real. And I believe me, I, I've written some hyperbole in my time and I, I know the difference. Yeah. That was, no, that was real. That was, I was at the end of his life. I was very close to him. And of course, a million people say that. But he had changed. He had become a become a good a good man, a good father, a good husband. He he become a really good, at least from what I saw. He become a good man, and he was always really good to me. And we had just talked like nine days earlier for a long time, and he was, you know, he was. It was it was interesting. I, I tell this story. He didn't have any entourage because he didn't have any friends because he was such an asshole <laughs> off the court. Yeah. So it would he was it would just be me and him. He'd walk to his car at that Staples Center, was then Staples Center, after games. Shaq would have 10 people around him. Derek Fisher had 10 people around him. Kobe had nobody. So it was just him and me. So we'd talk and walk, walk and talk every night. I cover I, I was I, every game I went to. We'd walk to his car, just him and me. And he'd tell me all about his life and his wife and his issues. And he was he was really open. I really considered him the Probably the closest guy I've ever covered, but besides Tony Gwynn, the best guy I've ever covered, the most complicated guy. But anyway, yes. So I wrote that off the top of my head, screaming into the keyboard. Do you think he did not care about having friends or do you think inside of him when he was a player and he was kind of a, because I wrote a book, Three Ring Circus, that kind of sort of chronicled that time yeah. period. And it, I, I can't tell sometimes with young people, if they get so stubborn in their ways that well, I'm going to show them if he really didn't care and was like, fuck them. Or if he actually they're inside, he wanted to be loved and just didn't know how to go about I it. I think, I think he cared. He wanted to be loved. He was, he wanted to be, you know, he was, he was really European. I mean, he grew up in Italy, you know, so he was Italian basically. And he wanted American street cred. He wanted American and he could never figure out how to get that. And I remember seeing his feelings were really hurt one time when he was talking about some issue. He said, yeah, I've talked to some of my buddies in the league about this issue, and this is what they say. And we all laughed. We said, you've got friends in this league? We didn't know. You. And he was hurt by that. He was really hurt Hurt. we said that. Yeah. I think he wanted friends. I, don't, I think he just didn't know how to do it. I just think he was always an outsider. He was always an outsider. And so he, 
he, he just said, screw it. I'm going to, I'm not going to try again with these guys. I can't do that. I can't play their game. They're not buying me. I mean, he was really smart. He spoke three languages. His favorite sport was soccer. Then, then his second favorite sport was women's basketball. So he was very different from the average NBA player. I wouldn't say smart. Every NBA, a lot of NBA players are smart, but he was just really worldly. Yeah. We're going to go through some greatest hits and misses. 2016, you wrote a piece that got you a lot of shit. Indifferent attitude to anthem, a red flag about Gabby Douglas at the Olympics. She she won the gold medal and she kind of stood during the ceremony and she was like, eh. And your lead was, you were in Rio, was, oh, say, can you see the Olympic gold medalist slouching during the playing of the U.S. National Anthem? By the dawn's early light Wednesday, lovable gymnast Gabby Douglas found herself in the middle of a perilous fight and it's one she can't win. During the medal ceremony for a gold-winning U.S. gymnastics teams Tuesday at the Rio Olympic Arena, Douglas failed to show her many considered appropriate reverence. As her four teammates stood at full attention with their hands over their hearts, Douglas was slumped with her hands casually in front of her. And you sort of went on to kind of dog her for not showing, you know, reverence during the anthem. This column was not received well in certain corners and sections of America. When you write a column and you take a lot of heat for it, does it bother you or are you steely enough that you're like, eh, fuck them? First off, this is why this podcast is so great, Jeff. You do you do your research. You you hit the Thanks, you hit the really the uh, the appropriate columns, the columns that I really got the got people going. Yeah, it was this was first of all, I stand by the column because this is not she was not it was not a political protest. She was mad because she wasn't in the all around finals. She was she had made herself very clear about that. She was pouting. She wasn't protesting. She was pouting. So I stand by that. But in this column, particularly, I was overwhelmed. And I was actually, usually, I steal myself against the criticism. And it's like, they can say what they want to say. I believe what I believe. You know, everybody else can go to hell. This this hurt me. This more than any other column I've written, this criticism hurt me. Because the people were accusing me of being, you know, racially motivated. They accused me of being, or even my own children said, Dad, you're like an old man yelling at a young young woman. And which, was, which, whether you were right or not, you were. Yeah, which I, I was two at times. You know, obviously, right. I, I was. I was. No, that that's why this hurt. Yeah. So the criticism. So I wondered. In hindsight, would I written that column again? I mean, I believe she was. There's no question she was patting on, on on the on the metal stand. Would I make it be such a big deal about it? You know, I don't know. Knowing what we know now and seeing how the protests have played out, I think there's too much. There's too much room for misinterpretation of the column. People misinterpreted it, I think. And there's too much room for that. And I may not have written it again. I may have just let it go because, and that's not the first. There's been many things I've written I wish I hadn't written in my career. Don't you think you learn as you get older, like, you don't have to write about every, like, you don't have to have an opinion on every single thing. And sometimes it is okay to say, I'm going to let that one slide. I'm going to let that one go. Yeah, and, and I do. And the ones I let go, I'm a real black and white person. I'm a real, it's either one way or the other. I'm not a lot of gray, but if it's gray, I, I just won't write about it. I just, yeah, I just, I just don't, you're and you're right. And, that, and this is one in hindsight, my own children told me I should have just let this one go. Cause it just, the optics are too bad. The optics are, I, I still stand by what I said, but the optics of putting it on, on the page are too, are too awful. And it just hurt me to make people think that I was being, I was picking on some young woman where I was being racially motivated. And that's that, that, that really hurt. So yeah, I probably wouldn't write that again. 
In uh, 2011, you wrote a column I freaking love. It was a mother of beaten Giants fan proves you never stop being a mother. And your lead was every day she talks to her son. Doctors give him little chance. The public no longer pays much attention, but nearly every day for more than a month, the mother arrives at cramped ICU room at County USC Medical Center to talk to her son. He is Brian Stowe, the San Francisco Giants fan who suffered a serious brain injury when he was attacked in the Dodger Stadium parking lot on the opening day. She is Ann Stowe, and she wants him to know that she will be his mother forever. We're here, little man, she says when she walks into the room. These are great. I mean, it's great. It's like great, great, great. And I'm interested. Like, there's this fan. He has the crap kicked out of him at a Dodger game. He's a Giants fan. A lot of people, would they'd write about the story for a day, maybe another day, and then let it go. And you sort of pursued this deeper meaning and deeper look into it. Why? Oh, because I feel like people have forgotten about it. They forgot it. You always go back, and you know this, Jeff. You look back and you think, you think about anniversaries. You think about one year ago, you revisit it. And I realized nobody ever talked to his mom. So I just tracked her down and nobody ever talked to her. It was, it was those kind of stories. I think it's, it's good to look at what happened, what big event happened a year ago and see, are people still talking about it or who's, you know, is there any less stone left unturned in this thing? And I felt, I just think Dodger people, I didn't want Dodger fans to forget what happened to this guy. And I didn't want the Dodger giant rivalry to get, get, to get a pass on this. And I wanted to keep that alive. And again, it's, it's, you look at things and you wait and you wait and you wait and you see if, if anything is, is, is coming up. And if it, if people have forgotten about it, you try to make them remember. Let me ask you a final question. I ask everyone this, what is the best confrontation you had with a reporter, writer, anyone in your career as a journalist? We're all Mondesi. Remember him? Come on. Of course. Yeah. It's a very famous Dodger. So he got a DUI and, and spent a night in jail and didn't play the next day. And I ripped him for it. The next so I go into clubhouse like a day later, because I always try to go into club. If I rip somebody, I try to go into clubhouse the next day is let them take their shots at me for ripping them. Athletes won't do this today. They don't confront writers today because it's all on video and they don't want to get, you know, YouTube and canceled by people. They don't look like an idiot. So, that, so Wait, Bill, but I do also want to say, I don't think writers were brought up like we are either to show up the next day. I actually do think it works both ways. I don't think the same mentality of if I'm going to bash someone, I better be there the next day. So that person can say something to me exists either. Yeah, that's true. And that comes a lot from the TV debate shows and all that stuff where everybody just rips. So Royal Monacy, I go in the clubhouse, Royal Monacy comes up, he puts his fist in my chest. Says, if you come in here again, I will kill you. If I see you again, I will kill you. He literally had his fist in my chest. We're standing there and just, I, I was stunned. I was shaken. I so every even today, before going to clubhouse or locker room, I do the sign of the cross because I don't know what's what's waiting for me and what terrible thing is waiting for me in there. So this guy just it was so the PR guy finally came and separated him, and they had a clubhouse meeting where the PR guy said he told him Derek Hall was his name. He's now the president of the Diamondbacks, and he said Plashke is going to be here longer than you guys. Just get used to it or ignore him, but don't put your fist in his chest and don't physically assault him. They had to tell him that. That's one. And the other one was these two older women bought me in an auction. I spent an afternoon with Bill Plasky. Just paid five grand to come to the Dodger game with me, pregame. Go to the little press box, meet Vinny, 
go on the field, watch batting practices, you know, as, as I hang out at the batting cage, you know, all that stuff. So there's two women with me. And we're standing there. And I'd ripped the day earlier, I'd ripped O'Dallas Perez for not pitching with a with a a, a blister or a, a broken fingernail. I'm like, a broken fingernail, are you kidding me? So Dallas Press sees me. And I'm standing there with these two ladies, two 60-year-old women. They're just thrilled about all the great Dodger traditions. He's running in from the center field, running at me. You son of a bitch. You MFer. You and he's killing me. These women are standing right here. And he's throwing his arms at he's, he's he's approaching me. He's getting this ball in his fist up at me, just screaming at me. The women are standing there just ashen. They don't know what they got into. PR guy grabs him. Somebody grabs me as if I was going to attack him. I wasn't going to do anything. They grab us, they pull us apart. And the PR guy looks at the ladies and says, you didn't know you bought the bonus pack, did you? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. These poor ladies were just, it just ruined their whole day to see this horrible, horrible confrontation, cursing and us cursing back. And it was, it was, it was terrible. Let me ask you a final, final question. It's 2023. You're at a Dodger game. You see Raul Mondesi or you see Odalis Perez. Do you walk up to him and be like, hey, that was funny. Remember? Ha ha. Or do you just kind of avoid? No, them? I don't give a, I don't give a crap about them. No. If no. they come up to me, I'll say something to them. I don't do it. No, I don't. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not, I spent, I spent my life going out of my way to talk to players. And this is something that, that, that would grind my gears as a beat person for 10 years. The definition of beat person is someone who you talk to players about their lives and their families. And they never ask about you. Never. They never ask about your family. They never ask about your life. It's a one-sided deal with the athletes. Nobody ever thinks to ask anything. And that's the definition of a B person is the one who has to basically suck up and subjugate themselves. So once I'm off the beat or once I don't cover me anymore, once they're gone, they're gone. I could care less. They're, they're, they're a regular person. They never ask about me. I'm not going to approach them. And I see, I see some writers approaching former athletes with rare, with reverence. If we were friends, I'll approach them. If they were nice to me, I'll approach them. But if they're mean to me, I don't care. I mean, that's, I'm done with all that. I'm done with all the, how you doing? How's your wife? You know, and, 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 you know, my wife just had a baby. Nobody asked about that. Right. Or my kid, you know, it's, it's so funny. It's such a one-way street. Wait, I just want to say, I had a conversation. I've talked about this on the show. Buster only years ago told me when he was covering the Yankees, one day he shows up and he has his thumb in like a cast. And he's like, every day I go in this clubhouse and I ask every single guy, everything about their lives and Mike Stanton and Jeff Nelson and these guys. And, Oh, you, you, how's your ankle today? Blah, blah, blah. And he said, my thumb is wrapped in a cast. And one player asked what happened to your thumb. Isn't that something that's, 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 that's the whole, that's a, that's a definition of being a B person. Yeah. Not that the players are not the players are necessarily mean. They just don't care. They don't care anything about you and you got to care everything about them. Yeah. And that gets old. Yeah, definitely. But it helps. It helps. Like we said before, remember I've been on this podcast, doing the beats, the most important thing a young journalist can do. Absolutely. Because it teaches you, it teaches you how to deal with conflict, teaches you how to deal with failure, teaches you how to deal with pressure, teaches you how to deal with people, teaches you everything. That's, that's the greatest school ever. 10 years as a beat baseball beat person, greatest school ever. And you can always say you saw Jack Picante play second base. 
Jack Fricante, you're, you're quite a great memory. He was a great guy. Yeah, there you go. Um, well, Bill, I appreciate you doing this. You've lived up to the hype, the bucket list hype for this podcast. I love these stories. Big fan of your work, obviously. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, you do a great job, Jeff. And the fact that you you did such research on me, you got so many comedy. You pulled out Gabby Douglas, and that's I my my tip my cap to you, my friend. Thank you. I want to thank today's guest, Bill Plasky, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Bill on Twitter at Bill Plasky and read all of his great work in the Los Angeles Times. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Singing Yang, please do me a favor and go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really appreciative, and it takes like two seconds. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.